All right. Well, we're still in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we continue our, our journey there um, this morning. Uh, I know you just sat down, but let's stand back up for the reading of the word. We're in Hebrews 6 this morning. We've been working our way through it. Um, it's been a rich study of who God is and um, who Jesus is. We are in chapter 6, 9 through 20. And if you don't have your Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full Assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So, We've been in the book of Hebrews. As a reminder, just to, just to catch you up, if you haven't been here, um, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who were followers of Jesus. Um, they were converted out of Judaism, and they were enjoying the, the beauty, the benefits um, of the new covenant. But they were under some pressure. This group of people, this local church, was under some pressure to revert back to their former religion. There was a strong cultural pressure uh, that they would shrink back on this new covenant. They would back away from it and they would return to their former way of life. The writer of Hebrews comes in and is trying, comes alongside this church and he's trying to convince his audience that the Jesus way under the new covenant is the better way. So regardless of the cost, the pain, the drama that it's bringing to their current circumstances, he's saying, listen, it's, Jesus is infinitely better and, and you need to stay the course if you want to live a life full of freedom and full of promise. That's what Jesus does. That's the new covenant. It's full of promise. So last week, if you remember, Kyle walked us through uh, uh, Hebrews 5. And it was a little bit of a talking to, right? Do you remember it? Let's, let's go back. I, wanna, I want us to just recap for a second here. It was, it was kind of a come to Jesus meeting. Have you ever had one of those? It was like a, a literal come to Jesus meeting. Um, verse 11 in chapter 5. About this, we have much to say. 
It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Pretty encouraging, right? Uh, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. And he goes on. So he's, he's, he's saying, you've grown spiritually deaf. Isn't that a good word for us? You've grown spiritually deaf. You should be teachers by now. Um, But I still have to teach you the basics. You can't chew spiritual food. You need the bottle again. Right? Can you imagine if I got up here and I was like, y'all, and I did this, y'all need a bottle. You know? I don't know how well that would be received, but we, we actually have to all together sit under this and go, this is what he's saying, not only to them, but also to us. He's saying, you're reverting back. You're going backwards. You aren't growing as you should. There's a, there is a major lack of spiritual maturity, a lack of transformation. So he's saying your growth is stunted. This is that outside pressure. And now you're in a state of perpetual spiritual adolescence. And you add in an internal sluggishness. And we'll see this word sluggish throughout Hebrews. It's all throughout the Bible. Sluggard. Um, It's just this idea of spiritual laziness. And he's addressing that too. Proverbs 13 says, The soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing. So he's saying, your desires are right, but there's just no follow-through. Can you relate to this? I know I can. How many times have you found yourself going, you know what, I want to follow Jesus better. I want to follow him more intentionally. I'm going to change some things. So what do you do? You imagine your morning routine, your devotional. You maybe buy, get on Amazon, buy a new devotional. You, uh, you imagine it, uh, you're on your back porch. Dappled, warm, dappled morning sunlight coming through the trees. Your Bible's open, a cup of coffee. Your spread is ready. But in reality, you're woken up by the hot breath of your toddler informing you that they have found a booger. That is more my reality right now. And some of you have different realities, but that's more my reality right now. I don't often get that dappled sunlight in the morning. So I've got to find it where I can get it. But that's how we kind of imagine. It's all too real. I loved how we ended last week. Uh, we, we ended by saying, what gets in the way? What gets in the way? Distractions, right? Do you remember the prayer time at the end of, of, of the sermon? Distractions get in the way. That's a, that's a big thing. They're, they're everywhere. Um, not dealing with sin. Unaddressed sin is a really, really big deal. So we're addressing these things last week. Discouragement was another one. What gets in the way? Because if we don't address these things... Um, we're going to fall into the same rut that the Hebrew church was, was running into. Um, 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verse 7 refers to a, this state like this. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Like always, always getting those podcasts, always coming, hearing the talk, hearing the sermon, listening to worship. So what, what he's saying is, what happened in, the, in your pursuit of Jesus... And growing in maturity, you can settle for information. 
Knowledge puffs up and gives us an, an inflated or an overinflated view of our spiritual life. In other words, content consumption can really just be a type of therapy for the immature believer. That's kind of what he's saying. So the changing winds of doctrine then come, culture comes, tossing us to and fro. Doesn't sound like the modern church though, right? We're really stable. We, we really got this under, under control. Pandemic hits. Discouraging political climate hits. Social conversations. Important conversations like God stuff. Justice. Race. There's rioting. There's protesting. Human sexuality. Wealth. Poverty. Where the wisdom of God is so needed. Give us wisdom. We just say the wisdom of God is so needed. How is the church doing? Are we engaging these, these things well? Are we engaging the world around us well? I think we kind of look like a mess, to be totally honest. We kind of look like a people who again need to be taught the basics of the faith. It's a baby bottle kind of scenario. <laughs> and you know, we have those cool communion cups. Maybe we need to find them in a baby bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Eugene Peterson, um, 30, 40 years ago, um, you, you know him as an author. He, uh, he was pastoring a church. Um, he had been pastoring them for 20 years. And a similar situation came to his doorstep. He was pastoring a small church outside of Baltimore. And kind of cultural winds started blowing. There was a financial downturn. There was uh, racial protests and riots in Baltimore, and he watched his church, after faithfully preaching to them the word of God, year after year after year, take on the same anxieties, the same fears as the culture around them. He said people that have never held a gun were buying guns. They were double locking their doors. They were buying alarm systems. There was so much controversial rhetoric happening. And at first he was really surprised. And then he was angry. <laughs> Because he's like, these people have sat under the word over and over and over again. They've learned, but it seems like they've not come to a knowledge of the truth. If, if you know anything about this story, this is from his book. Um, it's called Eat This Book. But this is, do you know the message Bible, the message paraphrase? This was the origins of that book. His, his church wasn't getting it. And so he started with the book of Galatians. He said that was Paul's angriest letter. So he started there because he was angry, and he just translated it. He said he translated it in, into American, and that's how he, he titled it. And he wrote that for a group of people, and that began the story of the message, which, you know, he translated the entire Bible. He was a Bible translator. All that to say, we can hear and hear and hear, um, but not hear. And that's what was happening in this Hebrew church. So we have to ask some questions. Um, are people really coming to a saving knowledge of the truth? Or is there just a bunch of postmodern spiritual therapy going on? You have to ask that about yourself. I'm a pastor, and I have to ask that about myself. Am I coming to the knowledge? Am I living in the knowledge of the truth? Or am I taking the spiritual life as a type of therapy to get through? 
So before we, we jump into our text this morning, I want us to, um, the parable of the sowers, um, that's the, I think that's a good framework for how we think of and how we better understand chapters 5 and 6, right? Because it seems like people are hearing but not hearing and, and people are not growing. Spiritual maturity isn't happening. So what's, what's going on? I think Jesus frames this really well in Matthew uh, 13. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of talk us through it. Jesus is explaining how people will hear and respond to the word. There's four seeds, right, if you know it. The first seed, um, it falls on the path and birds eat it. And what Jesus is saying, that, and, and what we know from the other Gospels, is that this is the attack of the enemy. This is uh, the enemy coming in and stealing that seed. Um, he, usually the enemy will uh, partner with distraction. Um, he'll um, sometimes partner with the sins of other Christians, right? When, you, when a new believer hears the Gospel, what, 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 what do you see the enemy start to bring to their attention? Uh, yeah, but look at the hypocrites. Maybe a fallen pastor. Um, the enemy will partner, and that seed will cause someone will go away and cause someone not to hear. Um, the second seed uh, it, it falls on rocky ground, where there's a little soil. The seed soon sprouts up, but the sun comes out, and the young plant is burned up. This is the picture of persecution. Um, someone gets a hold of the word, but persecution comes. And burns up that growth. The third seed falls among thorny bushes, which grow up and are choked um, by those those bushes, the thistles. Um, and this is the metaphor that Kyle ended with last last week. Um, but this is the cares of the world, the pleasures of the world. They come in and they choke out the seed. And then finally, the good news: the fourth seed falls on good soil, and the plant produces gospel fruit. And that kind of frames what we're talking about. Uh, Jesus says, for those who have ears, let them hear. So basically Jesus calls it, says, these are the ways people will receive my story. This is the ways people will receive the gospel. As you share your faith, us, as we share our faith, he turns to his disciples and said, hey, as you guys preach... As you become pastors of the, the, the local churches, this is how people will receive the word. This is how they'll receive my story. This is how your hearers will respond. So, a little sidetrack. In a sense, this story should help us um, kind of take the pressure off. Like, we don't save anybody. You know that, right? It's, it, it's not on you to save. It's the power of God to save alone. It's not on your charisma. It's not on your... Uh, your ability to be good with words, your persuasiveness, it's on God. However, the means in which this happens does involve us. As we experience God, as we experience the love of God, the life-transforming power of the Spirit, He invites us to testify about it, to say something, to actually say something about it, to preach the good news of Jesus. The Bible says, people overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. The word of your testimony. Your life backs up the word of your testimony. But people overcome by actually hearing about the love of Jesus. So on a, on a real practical note, if you're struggling with this, um, this might sound a little harsh, but there's kind of 
two possible reasons why you might be struggling with this if you're a believer. If you struggle with sharing your faith. The uh, first one is that you might need help in overcoming a fear, right? It's kind of scary to share your faith sometimes. Uh, you might need more courage. The second is a little more sombering. It might mean that you don't love Jesus as much as you think you love Jesus. Because we talk about what we love. Right? We talk about what we love. Um, we were talking this week, and uh, our student director, Dave, he was talk- we were talking about how much he loves coffee. And I can testify. When I met Dave, uh, he kind of looked down on my coffee game. Uh, and then he shared the gospel of good coffee with me. He discipled me in it. There was some new machinery that had to be bought. There were some new beans. There was a better roast date. You know, there's weights and balances. I've got, got a whole science lab in my kitchen now. He discipled me. You know why? Because he loves really good coffee. And so he talks about it, and he helped me out. And now guess what? I kind of talk about coffee. Um, it, Dave also loves Jesus way more than coffee, and he'll talk about Jesus too. He's good at spreading that gospel. But the point is, we talk about what we love. We talk about what we love. The main thing, though, sorry, that was like a, that was like a rabbit trail from a rabbit trail into another rabbit trail. Uh, the main thing... Uh, from this parable is, uh, it's a warning. Jesus is warning his people. A warning that the gospel seeds are sown, uh, or when the gospel seeds are sown, we need to be watchful over our lives and, and the lives of our brothers and sisters. We don't default to spiritual maturity. It's a narrow path that we're on. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter five, and then the beginning of chapter six, is picking up on that same tone of Jesus. It's a warning. It's a pastoral warning. And that's where we ended last week. And in today's text, we see the pastoral, change, pastoral tone change quite dramatically, right? And it moves into more of a, a sincere pastoral encouragement. Could you open your scriptures if you don't have them open? Um, chapter 6, 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way... Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Better things. He's like, let's talk about better things. Let me get to the good news in this letter. You know, these letters were were read all at once to these churches. He says, I want to talk about things that belong to salvation realities for those that are actually saved. Basically, he's saying, I had some really strong things I had to say to you. Some really hard things. I had to kind of play tough for a second there. But he's saying this, I'm not questioning your salvation. His encouragement to them then is that God sees them. He sees you. One of the things that set this church apart was uh, how they served one another. Um, Not only one another within, but the other churches around them. And he wants to say, God sees that. God sees you. He sees how you assist fellow churches. During this period of time, uh, churches weren't marked by being territorial. There wasn't as much church shopping, if you will. They needed each other. It was of no social or economic benefit to associate yourself with the Christian church in their time and culture. There was no mega churches. There was no mega resources. So they supported one another. 
If they needed money, they would give it. If they needed pastoral support, they would give it. Even if they needed parchment, paper to write on, they would give it. It's like knocking on you know, the local church next door to us and say, hey, we need some goldfish. The kids' goldfish is out. They would just gl- gladly give stuff and partner with one another. And it was powerful, and God saw it. This local church would give freely, and God remembered that. And so the writer is encouraging them. Um, verse, let's move on to verse 11 and 12 here. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise that you would endure. This is his encouragement. That you would have an assurance of hope until the end that you would overcome. This is what his prayer is. This is what he's writing, that you'd finish the race, that the gospel seed in your life would continue to grow. Jesus in Matthew 13, that seed that falls under good soil, he says that seed produces a fruit, yields a harvest. Not just one, not just two. He says um, 30, 60, even 100 fold. It's a really significant harvest. So verse 12 He says that I desire that you, through faith and patience, what? Inherit. Inherit the promises. Not just that you inherit the promise, but the fulfillment of the promise. Because this, remember, this text is about Jesus. Um, Inheritance language is that um, common familial language in the in the bible right this is one of god's like favorite metaphors for what it means to be in relationship with him he uses it all throughout the scripture um do you earn an inheritance no do you work for inheritance not really you might try to be faithful but who gets an inheritance a son a daughter the heir gets an inheritance, right? You don't earn an inheritance. You're you're born into that system. So I really want us to look at this. Um, That's an important word. Do you know the story of Nicodemus? I actually think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The story of Nicodemus, he was a religious ruler in the time of Jesus. He was watching Jesus' ministry and the Spirit was working on him. Um, this Nicodemus was a uh, highly regarded spiritual leader. He would have rigorously followed the law of God. But he comes to Jesus in a secret meeting, right? At night, it says he comes to him. And he says, I've seen what you're doing. I've seen these miracles. I've seen this, these like spiritual realities that you're opening, the promises. And he's like, what am I missing? What do I still lack to understand what's going on? And what does Jesus say to him? You remember? You got to be born again. Weird thing to say. And, you know, Nick is like, hey, you know, I'm old. So do I go back to mama and say, hey, this is going to get weird. But we have to do something here. No, Jesus is like, no, you don't, you don't do that. Please don't do that. But he's saying you have to be born again. Why is Jesus saying you have to be born again? He says that because in God's kingdom... You have to be adopted in. You have to be grafted in. You have to be a son or a daughter to receive. 
You can't earn your way into God's family. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says you've got to be born again. This is why he's saying that. It always kind of struck me as an odd thing to say until you see this really big picture that, that God is painting. But you have to be born again. You have to be a son, a daughter to receive the inheritance, the promises that God has been talking about. So the Jews up until this point were living under the law of God. And one of the main purposes of the law was to show you that you can't live up to it. You can't earn your way to a seat at that family table. The standard was perfection, and no one can live completely perfect, right? Except the story of Nicodemus falls in John chapter 3. What's John chapter 3, verse 16? Our favorite Bible verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever follows Jesus, has a seat at the Father's table forever. In Christ, God gives us faith and patience to inherit all of his promises. It's really good news. So back to Hebrews. I want us to look at verses 13 and 15 here, and we'll see our author's progression He's understanding the Jewish context. He gets it. So he pulls from that same familial Jewish narrative, invoking who? None other than old Abraham. Abraham and a promise. He refers back to Genesis 22. And let's flip there if you've got your Bible. I don't think it's it's on the screen behind me, but Genesis chapter 22, um, verse 16 through 18. Listen to this. So Abraham, had the promise had just been fulfilled to Abraham as far as him having a son that would be his heir, that he would father many nations through. And what does God do? He says, I, I need you to now sacrifice that son. It's a really crazy moment. Um, but God is working out a much bigger story, as we'll see. Um, but Abraham does it. Abraham doesn't go through with it, right? We know the story. He takes Isaac, his son, up to the mountain prepares it and God stops his hand and said this we're not going to do this but now I know your character and I know your faith and this is what God says in response he says by myself I have sworn okay that's we're getting there declares the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son you picking up on the theme I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So it's a big deal. It's a big promise for the Jewish people. They've lived off of it. Um, it's, it's hard to... Uh, overestimate the, the significance of Abraham. I know, Jake, when you were preaching, we, we, you were trying to talk about the significance of Moses. There's not really like an equal representation in our culture. Um, even when Moses is meeting God in the desert, uh, in the burning bush, God says, I'm the God of Abraham. Abraham was a big deal. He was daddy. He was like the big dog in their faith. And so when the, when the Hebrew writer is invoking Abraham, he's like, oh, and hey, this, this goes all the way back to Abraham. 
What I'm talking about, when we talk about Jesus, this isn't something right now. This is something that's been going on for a much longer time. Abraham was the embodiment to the Jewish people. And remember, this is a Jewish audience. That's why I'm talking about this. He was the embodiment of what it meant to be a worshiper of Yahweh. For the Jewish people, he was the primary example of a life of faith because God chose him to begin this familial storyline that would ultimately lead to the Messiah himself, the true and better Abraham. Abraham was very flawed. There was a lot of sin in his life. He was not perfect. Um, But he was a shadow of what's to come, right? So remember the context of Hebrews. People still needing encouragement that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah. And belief in him was the better way. This is the whole purpose, though, of all of Scripture. Do you know that? This is the whole purpose of all of Scripture. This this Hebrew writer is trying to demonstrate this by constantly recalling the Old Testament. He keeps going back. And that's why Hebrews is kind of confusing for us in our modern ears. We're like, I don't really know what's going on because we're not Jewish and we don't understand the lineage and the familial storyline, the heritage language. It doesn't compute to our modern ear. But I want to to just demonstrate this, um, that every single story in the Bible, every single story is pointing to Jesus. Every single one. Abraham was important, but he was a shadow of things to come. There's an excerpt from a a kind of a famous message from Tim Keller, and many of you have heard it, but I I just want to share it with you. Um, He says this, The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories in a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There's a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who uh, mediates a new covenant. There's a true and better rock of Moses who struck by the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There's a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes and saves his stupid friends. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There's a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate, ultimate heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There's a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There's a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, spotless, helpless, slain. So the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. The true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person. Jesus. 
And that's the theme here. In Hebrews, Jesus is better. So the writer says, remember when God made a promise to Abraham? I will bless you. I will multiply you. Do you remember that? That promise was so much bigger. That promise was so much better than you can even imagine. It wasn't just hopeful language. It wasn't just a dream that could be. This promise was reality because God said so. And for lack of a better term, God didn't just say so. He double stamped it. (laughs) This is that whole section in verses 13 through 18 where you've got this God is swearing and he's trying to convince his people and, and you're not really for sure what is going on. But God just seems to, he seems to want to really convince his listeners then and now that his promises will last. They are utterly untouchable. So by two unchangeable things, it says, right? By two unchangeable things, the promise will go forth. Number one, he actually said it, right? And when he says something, he cannot Physically, as a law of the universe, he cannot lie. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He can't lie. There's another five or so examples of the scripture where it's like God doesn't lie. He never lies. He's, it's never been shown that God has ever lied. He says that he won't lie. And number two, the second thing, the second unchangeable thing is that he swears by himself or to himself that he will keep that promise. He makes this oath. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. We'll actually see that verse quoted in the next chapter. So this is, this is that idea. We do this. You've done it. You've done it a lot probably when you're a kid, right? When, when you really want to convince somebody, what do you do? If you grew up Christian, you don't say this, but you say, I swear to God, right? You say, uh, I swear on the Bible. You find something bigger, more important than you. If you're on the playground, what do you do? Mama's grave. <laughs> you, knew it. you swear on your mother's grave. What a strange and terrible thing to do. But we're trying to convince someone, I, I mean it. There's no thing, there's no one greater than God. So he says, I swear to me that I will keep my promise. So needless to say, this promise was a big deal for the Jewish people. It was their anchor. Abraham and the people of God up until Jesus um, received and obtained this promise that God would bless them, multiply them forever. And their entire religious structure was built on this promise. Their, Their entire lives were based on this promise. But at this time, so going back to the, 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 the moment of the Hebrew writer, at this time... We can imagine the Jews were probably having a hard time like still celebrating this promise, right? Still celebrating the hope of this promise. They were currently living under an oppressive Roman regime. There was no real economic or social power. Their powerful kings had come and gone. And there was 500 years of prophetic silence. So no wonder so many of the Jews missed this Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of this promise. But he didn't show up like they imagined he would. And does Jesus ever show up how we imagine he would? 
He didn't show up and establish them at the seat of worldly power like they thought he would. They were expecting a superpower leader, and he came as a sacrificed leader. He came to conquer, though, a much more powerful enemy, praise be to God, than Rome could ever be. He came to conquer death itself. So it's to our great benefit today that we can look back and see from our perspective now, isn't it? We get to see the old covenant. We get to see the faithfulness of God, the promises in Genesis 22. And we get to track it all the way to this New Testament of ours. We get to witness the faithfulness also of fathers and mothers, church fathers and mothers that have gone before us, that have waited with patience, endured with faith. But now we get to live in this new covenant where Christ is the king of life and we get to see the fulfillment of that promise in in full view. It's not complete, right? There's still heaven, but we get to live in the fulfillment of Jesus coming and making it right. So our last two verses is verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is all Melchizedek and, and Kyle next week will we'll take all of that. But um, I want us to look at this moment here. We now have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, which is Christ. The Hebrew writer refers to him as the anchor of the soul. Pretty poetic, right? So it's this high priest imagery going on. This is the last, guys. It's the high priest imagery going on. Jesus enters into the holy of holies, right? Intercedes on our behalf. He is our advocate. It's a really beautiful picture. But it's not Jesus entering into the Jewish temple holy of holies, right? Oh no, it's much better than that. Because that that curtain was ripped when Jesus died. What it is, is it's this picture of an upside down anchor. An anchor that extends all the way up, stretching into a heaven as our eternal hope and security. An anchor set in power and glory at the right hand of God, the Father. A victorious anchor that is secure forever. And holds us fast in every storm, even unto death itself that's the picture here first corinthians chapter 15 i think we have it on the screen behind us um oh death where is your victory i'll read it oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So no matter the cost, no matter the drama that it might bring to your life, no matter the discomfort, the promise-keeping, promise-fulfilling Christ is our immovable, saving anchor now and forever. And that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to get his people to see. It's him. It's always been him from the beginning. Isn't that good news? 
I want us to go into just a, a brief time of prayer. And I'm just going to put up uh, three prompts that I want us to pray through. And, uh, and that's how we'll close. So stay in your seats. Let's read this prompt, and I'll just kind of walk us through it. This first one um, that I want to walk through. As a son or daughter, may I walk confidently in the unchanging promises of God and not live as though he might change his mind. Sometimes this is how we live our life. We're confident, but in the back of our mind, we're going, I don't know if God will really keep his promise. And he's faithful, always. So we, can we just make this our prayer? You can read it and bow your head and let's just reflect on, on this for just a moment. That God does not change his mind. All right, secondly, may I resist anchoring myself to the shifting promises of the world, but hold fast to the true and better anchor of the soul. May we resist the lowercase a anchors. You know what I mean? May we resist those. And then finally, may I imitate the faith and patience of church fathers and mothers that have gone before me. May I live in a community of people that disciple one another, that work together. Where the the older or the more spiritually mature disciple the younger. And then as the younger brother or sister, we submit ourselves to that process, whatever that looks like. But you submit yourself and you pursue someone who's gone before you. Who's lived a life of faith. Lived a life of patience. May we do that. Father, I pray that you would seal these things in our heart. Um, Thank you for Christ. As the the true and better everybody. (laughs) The true and better every scenario. um, Where his promises are yes and amen. Forever and ever. God, we cling to the anchor. We cling to that upside down anchor that stretches into heaven, that is secure forever in eternity, and that gives us an abundant way to live a life full of freedom and full of promise. May Christ be ever before us, ever beside us, ever behind us as we walk and navigate the, this life. We surrender and submit to him. We pray that you would help us in our trust and faith and patience. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen.